Thank you, Catherine. That was great. All right. Good evening, everyone. Um, we are going to continue with our, our new Through the Bible study. Um, before we do, since, since a handful of you are new to our church, I did want to just mention that the restrooms are a little bit difficult to find. Um, if you go to where the kitchen sink is, you'll see a pair of keys for the restrooms downstairs. You actually need to go outside through the side door and you'll see a staircase leading down to the basement and that's where the restrooms are. Um, I guess I should add as well that you will probably have difficulty with the side door, but don't give up. It's just, it's just a little stiff because of the weather. Um, but if you need the restroom, that's where to find it. Now, um, with our Through the Bible study, I want to say uh, one more thing in, in terms of intentions. Last week was our inaugural week, and uh, so we made it all the way through chapter one, which is a little bit slower pace than, than I'm shooting for, um, and we were also here a little bit later than I would like to be in the future, but I'm still kind of learning a feel for things, but the goal here it is. Here's, here's my promise to you. The goal will be a couple of chapters a week, and the goal will be to, to close up shop about 9 o'clock. And so that's, that's what we're shooting for. Um, our plan tonight is to pick up in chapter 2 and work all the way through chapter 5. Um, and as we move through it, you'll see that there's a reason why we're focusing in um, on that section. But let's just go ahead and jump right in, beginning in chapter 2. Now, we actually uh, covered the first three verses uh, of chapter 2 last week. And just to pick up, the reason why we covered those verses is because unlike the words, the sentences, the language itself of Scripture, the Bible declares of itself is divinely inspired, um, that it actually is, uh, in a sense, although written by men, also men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, to borrow Peter's phrase. And so it is in some sense God's revelation. The chapter numbers and the verse numbers, however, are added, and not, not by the Apostle Paul or Moses in the book of Genesis, but not until the 1500s uh, when an editor by the name of Stephanus was realizing he could make a more uh, attractive edition of the Bible by making it easier to reference. And so he added these numbers, and some of the chapter divisions are so strange to people trying to understand them um, that the, uh, the legend is that he did some of it on horseback, traveling from one place to another, because that's the only way we can explain the foolishness of some of those breaks. And so it's better to think of chapter 1 ending with the seventh day of creation, and so we have one complete story in um, in the creation of the world across these seven days. Now what happens here in chapter two is kind of like, if you remember back to your, um, your middle school science lab, when you've got the slide on your microscope and you get it all focused in and you do that at the 10 time zoom, you make sure you know what you want to look at and then you flip the scope over to the 100 time zoom. That's effectively what he does here and it's a very common trait of Hebrew storytelling, to tell the story and then wind back and tell the story again more closely, um, to tell it from a different perspective. So, for example, we'll see later on that, he, uh, that we'll move through a genealogy and that genealogy will roll forward and then it will double back to the beginning of the genealogy and start again. 
Um, if you keep reading through the Old Testament, you'll encounter both First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which actually tell about the same piece of history, but from two different perspectives. In the New Testament, of course, we have both uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which all cover the territory of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection from different angles. And we also have letters written by Paul at the same time, for the same reason, to different churches. And so Colossians and Ephesians, for example, share a lot in common, and yet we have both of them. And so it's a common trait that we'll see over and over again. What he's done, as I mentioned, is he set the slide and helped us to see the layout of, of the world that we live in. It's similar to when Shakespeare begins uh, Romeo and Juliet by telling us about fair Verona, right? It's the setting. But what he really wants to talk about is mankind. And so he doubles back and he tells the story again, focusing in on that perspective. So picking up here in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, what we have here in this word generations is the Hebrew word toldot, and it's found over and over again in the book of Genesis. We'll encounter it, in fact, another time tonight. Ten times in total, we find it throughout Genesis, and it becomes kind of the beginning of a new story and the end of the last. And for the most part, what we find in these is the introduction to what's about to follow. And so although it says here, these are the generations of the heaven and earth, that's not a summary of what was just said, but it's actually an introduction to telling the story again. Now, one of the reasons we know that to be the case is every time this is laid out, it will mention the character we already know, and it will actually tell us about what follows. The generations of Adam, for example, are his sons, Cain and Abel, etc., Okay. So here, to tie it all together, to connect his introduction with the creation of the world with the rest of the stories he's going to tell, he uses that same language of the toldots, of the generations, and here it's the generations of the heavens and the earth, specifically he's speaking of mankind. And so he picks up here in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. And so, once again, here we get a setting. And the setting is to show some of the differences in life as the author's audience would know it, and the beginning the place that he's beginning here and so he imagines uh, he imagines here the world before plants had really developed before um, before rain had truly fallen before there was man to cultivate the earth and so the idea here is that all of life is there embryonically but it's just sitting it's just waiting you may remember that in chapter 1, when man and women were created, they were created to have dominion over nature. And so God's built the world to be developed, as we'll see today, to be cultivated. But everything right now is in a sterile state. He starts there, and he picks up again here um, in verse uh, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man... Uh, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. 
Now, as I mentioned, on day six, we already saw the creation of man and woman, but now he zooms in and he, he goes through the process very particularly. And we see a couple of things that will become important. The first is it says that he forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. And so what we're seeing here is a more proactive creation than what we've seen with the animals or with the plants or with the light where he spoke and it came into existence, right? There's um, the word here for formed is the same one that we would use of a potter sculpting a piece of clay, right? He's shaping a body for mankind. And then more importantly, it says that he breathed in man and man became a living spirit. Man became alive. And so there's two unique actions we see here in God's involvement in mankind. If you remember last week, we saw how set aside mankind was. Remember that it, mankind's creation in chapter six is the, or in day six is the only one that begins with a deliberation where God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And so here we see nuances again that set mankind apart. Uh, part of what it means in chapter 1 to be created in the image of God, to have this special relationship, we see here played out in the fact that God takes an active role in their creation and imparts to him his breath. And uh, both of these concepts, dust and breath, become constant metaphors for the Hebrews to talk about humanity. And so what it means to be alive is to have breath. And what it means to be human is to be but dust. And every time these are referenced in the Psalms and in the prophets, this is what it's thinking of, that God created us out of just the physical realm as it is, shaped us into what we are, and in him, as Paul puts it in the New Testament, we live and we move and we have our being. And so our life is, is given as a gift from God directly like a breath, like in a mouth-to-mouth situation breathed into us. Um, and so it says here that the man became a living creature, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the gr- ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. And so we see here especially, not only has God created a whole world for Adam, but here he creates specifically a garden. It's, it's, um, it's like a new world with training wheels, right? The trees are already grown and bearing fruit. There's everything he needs to sustain and survive. Um, he will be, he'll get to the place where we find ourselves now, where we have to start from scratch, where we have to break up the fallow ground, where we have to plant, where we have to wait, where we're dependent upon rain. But Adam starts in a word that later is translated as paradise, and it's where we get this concept, a garden, uh, a place that has everything they need. And he sets Adam here intentionally, and then it says that in the midst of the garden... Uh, was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, I want you to notice how little explanation there is here, right? Outside of the fact that one's called the tree of life and the other has the name the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we're not told anything about them. Despite popular thinking, we don't know what kind of fruit is on either of these trees. We don't know why they have their names or what sets them apart from other, your average tree, right? But there's these two specifically set at the center of the garden. What is this in a narrative sense? It's foreshadowing, right? 
he's laying the setting and he's drawing us in. You, sometimes we need to remember what it's like to read something for the first time. And so that it's just referenced. Foreshadowing is the idea that when we tell a story, we point to what's going to happen even in the setting of the stage. And so there's a famous saying in acting uh, in the creation of plays that says if there's going to be a murder in act two, there better be a gun in act one. And so what we have here is this slight premonition, this something in the setting that's unique, that's different, and we see that it's set right at the center of the garden. And he continues on here. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, some of those names probably sound familiar to you. Going back once again to your middle school education, you probably remember the Fertile Crescent that is surrounded on one side with the Tigris and the other with the Euphrates. Assyria is basically similar to, to our understanding of Assyria today. And when it mentions Cush, most of the time the Bible means by Cush what we now call Ethiopia. Okay, so just southeast of Egypt. However... However, these other two rivers and, and a phenomenon where two other major rivers connect with the Euphrates and the Tigris is completely unknown to us. Not to mention, if they were known to us, then we'd have a good place to stake a claim and dig for gold, right? Because what does he tell us? That in this area, by this river, is gold, and not just is it gold, but it's good gold. Bedellum is another uh, precious stone. It's black in nature, um, and, and that's referenced as well. But it seems irrelevant, does it not? Like, first thing we have to do is we have to recognize as we move the story forward, Adam and Eve are going to be removed from the garden. I hope that's no surprise to you. Um, but eventually, there's going to be a universal flood, okay? And so, going through that process, what do you have on the other side of the flood? You may have a Tigris and Euphrates that are generally where we remember the Tigris and Euphrates being, but they're no longer the same river. And I don't just mean that in the sense that you never step in the same river twice, I mean that, uh, that with Noah, we have one foot in before flood and one foot in after flood. And as he looks around, some things are same, some things are very different. Okay? But the reason why I bring this up is because it, it has an earmark that is tremendously intriguing to me. Okay? It's this. Okay? Irrelevant details like this are often the sign of, a, of an eyewitness. Okay? Uh, here's, here's why, because if, if you witness a crime and then you're sitting and telling your story, there will be details you tell that have nothing to do with the crime itself. But you add them because you're recalling your own memory, and so you'll say, I know it was a Tuesday because I had just gone grocery shopping, which I do weekly on Tuesdays. And when you read the gospel accounts, you'll find the same thing, these irrelevant details. For example, in the gospel of Mark, as Jesus is carrying his cross to be crucified, it mentions that a man from Cyrene by the name of Simon carries his cross. But in the midst of that, it says whose sons are Rufus and Alexander. Now, we read that today and we go, who are they? But why is Mark recording it? Mark is recording it because the original audience, the Roman church that he's writing to, knows who Rufus and Alexander are, and so he makes a touch point. He makes a shout out. He connects the dots in a way that doesn't mean anything for us. So clearly... 
when this document was written, he's giving a general idea, a general area of how things were, and I would argue that it points to a document of some sort predating the flood. That as we would expect from this concept of the generations, the toldots, what we have is a bunch of written records of humanity that have been compiled together, connected, and formed. We'll see more of this to come, but I want you to notice that that's why this detail is here. It's the best way to understand this detail is that it meant something to the people who originally wrote it down. As an aside, because we'll get there tonight, we'll hit some genealogies. They may seem irrelevant to us because you can't even recognize two or three of the names on there. But remember, just like your immigrant grandparents may have recorded their genealogy in the front of their Bible, there are people who this is not, this is not some random stranger thousands of years ago, but my great-grandma, my great-grandpa. Um, in the same way here, we find these details that give us a general area for the garden. Um, but more importantly, he continues on here. And he says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, okay? So once again, as we saw last week, mankind, before everything goes sideways, before there's sin, before there's death, before there's the curse, before there's the fall, man is made for work. In many other religious beliefs and in many other origin stories and mythologies, work is a negative consequence. The most similar stories we have to the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2 come from that general area, Babylon, Arcadia, places like that. Uh, and in those, uh, one of them in particular, because of the failure of some of these demagogues, they are punished with taking care of the world as we know it, like Adam is here. And they don't want to do it, so they create mankind to take over the work so that they don't have to. They middle management their way out of it, okay? Um, and unlike that here, we see an inherent value, meaning, dignity, and purpose in work. That God didn't create paradise as a place without work, just a place without toil, the Bible maintains a distinction between work as being a good and fruitful thing, cultivation of a garden as being as God intended, and the frustration that we experience after everything goes sideways in work. And so um, the result of the fall that we'll see today is not work or effort, but futility. That that effort doesn't always go right. That we have things like dust bowls, that nature itself seems to be set against us. But work here we see, uh, God gives them a job to do, and it's specifically to work the garden, to cultivate it, as well as to keep it. And that word keep, it, it speaks of protection, okay? And so basically, Adam's job is gardener, to take the raw ingredients that God has created in this garden and cultivate it into something more beautiful, now, I don't know if any of you have gardened, but gardens take work, and when you work a plant or when you work in an orchard, you can actually make the plants themselves more beautiful, more fruitful, with a better yield, more productive, okay? And so that's as we see it here. Um, now, it's worth mentioning here that it says that he's to guard, to keep the garden, and at, th at the moment, we don't have anything that we would expect the garden to be kept from, right? Protect the garden from what? 
from the good world that God has created on every day. He's looked at all of it and said, it is good, it is good, it is good. What we'll see in just a moment is a complete, uh, complete peace between mankind and the animal kingdom. And so there's, it's not keep it from wild animals or raccoons. It's not keep it from invading tribes. But still, this word sits here and remains. It's another piece of foreshadowing. Already, it's actually speaking of Adam's failure. Okay? And as he moves on here, uh, verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Now, we're probably more familiar with the second command God gives than this first one. But it's important that you notice it. What does he say? He says, enjoy. I've created this entire garden for you. Every different type of fruit, every different vegetable, the entire smorgasbord that I've created here is for you to enjoy. Eat your fill, taste and enjoy. Then we get the second half, verse 17. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So now we get our first explanation of one of the trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God just says there's a consequence for eating of that tree. He says, do not do it. He makes a command. But I want you to notice a few things about this commandment, okay? The first is you have to keep it in the context of the whole garden. And so God doesn't set up Adam Uh, and leave him hungry and give him only one option for nourishment and say, I want you to trust me enough to not eat, right? As if if Adam's like the child when we do the self-control tests and we leave the cookie on the plate and we say, now we're going to leave the room, don't eat the cookie, right? This temptation is accurately called, in a sense, arbitrary. And we'll get to that in a sense, but it's not cruel, right? God creates an entire garden, and only limits one tree. G.K. Chesterton talk about, talking about this says uh, that God created the Garden of Eden full of mercies and his command to not eat of this tree was the greatest mercy of all. And so recognize here that the garden is out of God's goodness. But the tree is placed here. Why? The reason is because God has given, if you will, Adam and soon to be Eve a way out the ability to choose to not obey okay and so he doesn't create a world where nothing can be broken where nothing can go wrong because in a world like that you don't have obedience you just have good programming right this is the distinction between a computer program that just does what it's programmed to do and a human being It's also, many theologians have pointed to, the foundation of what it means to love. Okay, And so here, the option for them to willingly and freely obey has to entail the option to rebel. And so he creates this and basically says, you have the option to listen. You have the option to trust. You have the option to obey. But all of those imply the option not to. And so, um, so it's set here, and he also lays out the consequences. For the, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, ever since I read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, I've thought about this in a different way. 
In the Space Trilogy, Lewis imagines a human being who's sent to Venus. I know this is nerdy, but just stay with me for a second. Who's sent to uh, Venus where these same things are playing out again for the first Venus person and the first Venus female. And his job is to stop her from making the mistake that Adam and Eve did. Okay? Um, And what's interesting is Ransom, that's who my son is named after, that's the character in this book, he's trying to explain to her death, to somebody who's never encountered it, to somebody who's never seen it, and he, he finds himself struggling to do so. And it's worth recognizing here that whatever you shall surely die means probably isn't registering on the Richter scale the same way it would for us today, right? This is death in a world where there is no death. But nonetheless, you have the severe commandment of God, you shall surely die. Do not do this, right? God is adamant. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The first thing we have to notice here is that a pattern has just been broken. That if we go back to chapter one and we look at the creation of the world over and over again, we have the repeated refrain, and God made, and God looked at what he made, and he saw that it was good. Now remember, when we get to day seven, which we're not to yet, he's going to say that the world is very good, right? It's a final stamp of approval on all that God has created. But here, we have an incomplete good. We have unfinished business. He looks at man, at Adam, in his soul self and says, no, this isn't good. It's not good that man should be alone. Now there's a recognition here that's twofold. And the first is just simply put that human beings are created for community that they're made to be in relationship, that as much as we like to pride ourselves in our modern American world with autonomy, that that's not actually how we were designed. In fact, notice here before everything goes south, we don't have independent Adam and Eve who are just self-sustaining and and buddy-buddy with God. We find them being solely and completely dependent upon God, even to know the difference between good and evil. Right? And so here, they have to listen to God. They're not an equal with God. They don't have the wisdom that God has. Humankind were designed needy, in need specifically for relationship, first and primary with our creator, but even beyond that with one another. The human life alone doesn't go well. And even God, looking at Adam here, you know, a single man on day one goes, oh, this isn't good. And that leads us to the second point, which is very clear here, is that God has, is creating, as we saw in chapter 1, male and female in his image. That God didn't just create um, asexual beings that could, uh, that could work best on their own, but there's something relationally, something inherent here, something that we need, okay? Something that gender fulfills. And I, I'm going to get to this all in a moment, but it's worth mentioning here that this is not merely about sexual union. It's not merely about the marriage relationship. If you're single and following God's commandment to abstain from sexual activity, that doesn't change the fact that you still need the other gender. And we don't have time to walk that entire road, but if you read the scriptures, you'll see that even the, um, the singles that that Paul upholds and says this is an option for life, that it's still an engendered life. 
and that it's a engendered life in a in a binary gender world where men need women and women need men that humanity itself is not incomplete if it's left merely one or the other and so he looks at this and he says it's not good for a man to be alone and then notice the second thing he does he says i'm going to do something about this and this is what he does uh look at verse uh 18 again he says i will make him a helper fit for him now we need to do a little bit of work here because when we use the word helper to refer to another person it's always diminutive okay and so we have mother's little helper right and that's what it sounds like here i will make him a little helper right but that's not what this word means at all most of the time this word is used it means you're in need of help and help is on the way okay and so by using the word helper here it's first and foremost implying that adam needs help that he's incomplete okay um oftentimes when this word is used it's used of someone stronger like an incoming army in fact multiple times this word is used of god himself god my helper Okay, and so we've got to watch from reading in um, uh, our misogynistic fears into this word as it stands. However, we also have to recognize here that the story is told with an incomplete man and woman given to help him. Okay, and so there's more coming in that, but you can't throw that one out and you can't explain this away as being um, just, just merely patriarchy. You've got to pay attention. You've got to hold on. Um, but as we saw in chapter one, should probably put this to rest. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so as much as there's a complementariness to gender, as much as we need one another, as much as we're incomplete without the other, we're both completely male and female reflecting the image of God. We're equal in our value and our dignity because of that. Okay? And so... So hold on here, but do make reference to the point here that Eve's role is to help Adam, okay? Now, instead of just doing that, he says, I will make a helper, and then it sounds like the story just totally detours. Look at verse uh, 19. Now God, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. And so we, he says, I'm going to create woman. And instead of doing that, he takes all of the animals that he's created and he brings them to Adam. Okay. Now, to get the point here, and you could read ahead and get the point, but to get the point in this verse as it stands, remember that we saw in the creation that everything would reproduce according to its kind. That the animal kingdom itself is engendered with male and female and so what's happening here is Adam names the animals he's recognizing two things first off that those animals come two by two Mr. Hippo and Mrs. Hippo right Mr. Snake and Mrs. Snake as he's going down the line and then second as he looks at these he finds all of them even man's best friend is not is not enough for Adam so to put this simply God sees the need before Adam does and then he shows him the need Okay. Now, why does he do this? He does this because we have a tremendously good tendency to not recognize a good thing when it's right in front of us. That's just human nature. If we don't feel we need something, we don't always recognize the need, and so then when we have it, we feel like it's, uh, it's optional. But how has God assessed the situation? This isn't good. It's not good for man to be alone. And so he helps Adam to feel this. 
as he looks. And look at what it says here in verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Okay, and so he sees now what God is feeling. He sees now God's own assessment and he feels it himself. Now, I also want you to notice here that it says that Adam names the animals. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean he looked at a hippo and said, oh, you're a hippopotamus, right? He wasn't speaking English, but the idea here goes back to the idea of dominion in chapter 1. It goes back to the idea of image of God being a reflection of ruling on God's behalf. And so that ruling, that authority, that responsibility for the animal kingdom is reflected in the fact that he names them, and that's the name that they take. God doesn't introduce him and say, I'd like you to meet a bear, right? He says, here, Adam, what do you think of this one? This relationship is intentional. It's built into the DNA of this. This is happening, and it will come back to us. But notice here, he feels it now, and what happens next? Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And so what we see here uh, is that Adam goes under the knife, right? That God puts Adam into a deep sleep, and then this word here for rib, we don't actually know what it means. And so the idea here isn't necessarily that it was a specific bone in the body. We know generally that this word is used in other places to speak of side. We just don't know if it's more specific than that. But the most important thing here is that the woman is created out of the man. That she's not completely unique material, created out of something entirely different. And then it's not just a repeat of what we already saw. Creation out of the ground and then breathed into. The relationship is closer than that. Right? And so directly out of his side. And I think it's somewhat appropriate that the rabbis pointed out that that when the woman is taken out of the side here, that she's not taken out of the head to rule over the man, nor out of his feet so that man would trample on her, but out of her side so that she would fall under the protection of his arm and be close to his heart. Whatever this concept here means, that idea of closeness is an important one. And we see here God forming something new, something complementary, but something different, something made in the image of God, but something unique. And he brings it to Adam and he awakes to see Eve. And here we encounter the first poem in the Bible. This is another reason, as a side note, why I struggle to read Genesis chapter 1 as poetic, as if it's merely just a story of no historical import. Uh, Because the poetry in Hebrew sense is relatively easy to recognize, and this is it. That's why your paragraphing has indentation here that sets it aside. He sees woman, and he exclaims loudly, and this is what he says in verse 23. The man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Do you read that at last there? Do you see it? What is he saying? He wakes up, and he gets the meaning. Not a bear, not a monkey, not a dog, at last This is the one who's built for me. And somehow, he even recognizes the creation itself. Like, I don't think there's, you know, an incision scar or stitches or anything like that, uh, you know, but he recognizes, this is me. This is us. Bone of my very bone. Flesh of my very flesh. Now, the way that this word is used in the rest of scriptures, he might actually be alluding to the closeness of the marriage relationship. That marriage relationship is the only one that becomes just like flesh and blood. 
even though it doesn't start as flesh and blood. And so you have this close relationship with your parents because you are their child, but here he sees joining of Eve as, as that type of relationship, of a restoration of the two becoming one flesh. And so he continues, he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now recognize once again here that Adam names something. He names his wife woman. Why? Because she was taken out of man. In the Hebrew, kind of like the relationship between man and woman, there's a relationship. And so the word here for man is ish, and her word is isha. She will be called isha because she was taken out of ish. Okay? But I want you to notice once again that even though there's a difference, it's the commonality that's emphasized. Just like my bone, just like my flesh from the same place as me, made for the same purpose. And then our author here adds some commentary. Now this is a really important segment because we're starting to discover how the author sees this story. He sees it not merely as a myth that explains why people are afraid of snakes, for example. He sees it as defining and explaining the details, the nuances of human existence itself. And so he says, because woman was taken directly out of man, because woman was created as a helper for man, because it's not good that man should be alone, he says here in verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so he says, because Adam and Eve were made for one another, if you will, because they were created to be together because Adam recognized this and because God said it's not good that man should be alone and made a way to fix that in the form of woman. He says, therefore, marriage. Therefore, the sexual union between a husband and wife. And so what does it say here? It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, here's the first thing you need to understand. This is not just your oldest son moving out. In fact, for all of Jewish history as we can unpack it, as far back as we go, most of the time it was the woman who left her parents' home and moved in with, the, with, the, um, with her husband and his family. Okay? And so often what would happen when your son got married is you'd just build an extension on your house or you'd set up another tent next door. You'd join their tribe, right? And so this can't, this can't mean merely that there's a change in address. What does it mean here it, when it says that the man will leave his mother and father? It means the forming of a new family unit, right? It means a bond closer than the bond between parent and child. In some sense, very clearly, it means a breaking of one and the forming of another. And so it, the contrast here is that you leave one and you cleave to the other. And the word here for cleave is a very close one. It means to cling, to hold on tightly to. And then it goes beyond that and it says the two shall become what? One flesh. Now, it's very easy, I think, for all of us to see a, um, a picture of the sexual union itself, right? Of the two becoming one flesh. But it's obviously, as we look at this text, more than that, okay? You could say all it means here in the two becoming one flesh is that bond of bone and flesh, of what we would call flesh and blood, right? That bond being so close that a marriage is just as close as the parent-child relationship, that it's something new and it's mystical in the sense that this bond is created out of nothing, right? But more likely, it's also pointing to the intent of this relationship as a whole, 
reflected, yes, in sexual union, but extending into the entire relationship that, simply put, the goal of a marriage relationship is intimacy, that the two would grow so close together. In fact, we see that expanded upon in the next sentence. Notice what it says about this first husband and wife. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so what do we see in the concept of nakedness here? Intimacy. Once again, reflected in the sexual union, but here, this is always naked, which is a way of saying always intimate. And then on top of that, it's unashamed, which means even in the most vulnerable aspect of their marriage, right? Even in their most vulnerable aspect of their existence. I mean, it's cold, but a good reason we wear clothing is because we can't suit this naked and unashamed. We have things to hide, right? Clothing becomes this metaphor in the story for the need to cover up. I want you to notice here that with the world before things have fallen, the explanation that is given to us is that it's a world without shame. Now, it doesn't say that they were naked and innocent, which is how we generally speak of the story, and guilt is clearly part of this. But in trying to describe what life is like before sin, the word that Moses chooses is unashamed, a world without shame. And that's because there's a difference between guilt and shame, okay? Guilt is when you've done something wrong. Shame is when there's something wrong with you. It goes deeper than that. It has to do with identity. And it's hard, I think, for us to imagine a world where, I, where identity is so solid that we can have full and complete to be known and to know communion with another person that's completely unhindered, without secrets. Think of all of the marriages you know and you've heard about where there's been tremendously deep and defining secrets from the spouse. No one knows you better than this person, but you still hold part of yourself back. You're still afraid that there's something that if you put it out there, that would be the end of the relationship. The Bible envisions marriage as being an unbreakable covenant, a commitment till death do us part. And the, uh, the ideal here is lived out in the fact that they were naked and not ashamed. And so this is full and complete intimacy. A relationship that has no hindrance, no barrier, no conflict, no argument. And so what we have in chapter 2 is the way the world was designed to be. And it doesn't just tell us what a world without bad things looks like. It also tells us how a world without bad things was meant to work. Where there could be, for example, a relationship that's complementary between a husband and wife, but it wasn't a threat to the wife's dignity, right? I'll I'll spoil the plot for you right now. It is very hard to read this story without seeing Adam as the leader of their relationship. He's the one that names Eve as the helper. But when we hear that, we inherently recognize all of the abuse that can come with that. We recognize all of the negative things. Uh, We see that as just a demonstration of of Adam ruling over in some sort of uh, dominion sense, but we're breeding all of that in. And actually, there's a place for it in the story. It is very possible to have leadership without lording over. In fact, Jesus says that that's the principle of what it means to lead. He says, you know that the Gentiles like to rule over one another and lord over their authority on one another. But he says, not so with you. But if any of you is the greatest, let him be the servant of all. He takes leadership and he doesn't throw it out and say, democracy is the way things should work. He throws out the poison of sin, of self, um, 
of self-focus and taking advantage of others. And he says, that's not what leadership really is. One of the things that's helped me as I've thought about this is the word responsibility. Okay, that's the starting place, not authority in the Bible. Adam is responsible for Eve. Adam and Eve together are responsible for the world that they live in. That's the role that they've been given. Now, this is where things are, but it's not where things stay, and so that brings us to chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. Notice two things here. First, it mentions the serpent that the Lord God had made. Now, we're going to find out as we read the story, this is not merely a snake. Okay? In fact, if you go all the way to the end of the story in the book of Revelation in chapter 12, we get kind of a bigger, broader picture of what's going on here. And it speaks of a war of angels in heaven and Satan being cast down to earth. Uh, and it refers to him as that old serpent, the deceiver. It connects the dots for us. Okay? And if you reduce this, once again, just merely down to a serpent, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If you read Paradise Lost, Milton's great epic about the fall of mankind, he takes these two ideas and he pictures Satan being cast down to hell before the creation of the world as we know it, dusting himself off and saying, this is my new home because it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And then going, what about the prophecies of the creation of a new type of person? Maybe I can go mess that up. And so he, he leaves hell and he makes his way to earth and he fulfills what we see here. Those details aren't here. But if you continue to read through the scriptures, there's more going on here than merely a talking animal. In fact, just the fact that the animal talks should be a clue here. If you've read old folk tales and stuff, animals talking is no big deal. In the Bible, it's a big deal. It only happens twice, okay? And one, it's because the Lord opened the mouth of Balaam the donkey, right? That's not a normal thing. It's a miraculous thing. And here, it's something else, okay? Now, the second thing, I, or the first thing I want you to notice then, once again, is that it still says that the serpent was one of the creatures God had made. The idea here is not some sort of Taoistic or, or Zoroastrian balance between good and evil in a constant war, but equal and in balance and intention with one another. All that is was created by God. There is only one God. There is only one authority. Um, and the Bible's pretty specific. He's going to win. Okay. But there is still evil and it doesn't answer what we'd like to know is well, how evil then? How can God create a world, say that it's good? How can he create angelic beings and then allows them to fall? How can this even happen? And the Bible doesn't tell us. What it does say over and over again is that even this is part of God's plan. And that doesn't make him responsible for evil, but he has a moralistic judo. Okay? Judo is the martial art form where you use the force of your opponent against them. So they throw a punch, and instead of blocking the punch, you grab their arm and you pull them through it, right? So it's their force that throws them to the ground. In the same he way here, what we have is that God is fully aware of Satan's plan, and he uses it to accomplish his good. This is why Joseph can say to his brothers, what you have meant for evil, God has intended for good. Because look, now we all survive the famine. This is why we can look at the cross of Christ and see it as the terrible attack on God that it is. The final and ultimate rebellion of mankind against the God who created, and yet it is God who is acting in that cross for our own good. Okay. Now the second thing I want you to notice is not only that he was made, but it says here that he's more crafty than any other beast of the field. 
Now, here's a, a, a feature of Hebrew writing that is completely different than American and English and Western writing in general. We do not get descriptions very often, ever. I mean, if I ask, um, if I ask what Robin Hood looks like, if I ask what, you know, um, well, or even just take, take the comparison between, uh, between how an author saw the characters in their mind and their fi- film portrayal, right? Why can we do that? Because we know the color of the hair, and we know their build, and we know what their face is like. If you read the Bible, you won't find descriptions hardly ever, okay? I can only think of a few. Zacchaeus was short, right? We're not told at all what Jesus looks like. We know that David was ruddy, as if you even know what that means. It means he was probably a redhead, right? Uh, We know that Saul was taller than everybody else, but in general, the descriptions are left out. And not just descriptions of physical, but descriptions of other attributes, And so we're not told when people are stupid. We're not told when they're right or when they're wrong. Very rarely does the Bible step in and say, this was a wicked thing to do. It lets the story speak for itself. So it should be surprising to us that our first introduction to the serpent is a description, that he's more crafty than all of the other animals, okay? This word crafty does not have a negative connotation in the Hebrew. It's used as something we should aspire to, in the book of Proverbs, and I think probably the word that's best implied here is strategic, and we'll see that in just a second, but in using it, there's something a little bit tongue-in-cheek going on. The author is trying to cue us into the fact that there's more to the story, and so notice what it says here, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made, and he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So notice, out, out of the gate here, what the serpent does is he questions Eve, and he clearly does it with strategy. He clearly does it with intent, okay? There's really only two options for this serpent that we know nothing about. Either he's never heard of the command or he's heard it, right? And he gets it wrong. He knows of it, but he gets it wrong. He says, am I right? Did God say you're not allowed to eat of any of these beautiful trees? Why? It's because he's getting her off kilter. It's because already in this, even though it's a wrong accusation, he's impugning the character of the lawgiver. He's saying, is God so unjust, right? Suddenly there's an idea that that would have never occurred to Eve, that she should be suspicious of God, that he might not have her best interest in mind. And it's worth pointing out here that Satan begins by questioning what God has said. And we see this continuously. There's many comparisons that can be made between here, uh, between the the fall of Achan, uh, between the struggle that Cain has, uh, between the warning that's given to us in the book of James, between the temptation by Satan of Jesus in the wilderness. There's tactics here, okay? And we don't have time to dig into it, but I want you to notice that what he's doing is he's sowing a doubt, and he does it in a way that's intentionally trying to confuse, okay? And so he starts broadening. He says, are you not allowed to eat any of these trees? Is that really what God said? And Eve responds. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of uh, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so she responds and says, no, we can eat of any tree except one. And she does add something here. She says, but we're not even allowed to touch it, right? You can go back and read God's command. It's pretty short. Where this idea comes from isn't stated. I have, I have an idea, but we'll come back to it. But nonetheless, she doesn't have a full understanding here, and 
Satan brings in, if you will, um, exhibit B. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. So first he questions the command, and now he just goes directly against it. He says, oh, that's not what's going to happen. I want you to recognize here this is a fresh interpretation on life. Right now there's two interpretations. Eve has to choose which one is true. Is what God says about the world and about the consequences true, or is what you're telling me true? Okay. Now, granted, this is a talking snake. And so he may have, you know, um, the benefit of the doubt, right, in this. This is a surprising thing for Eve to encounter. We don't get the idea that all animals talked in those days, right? But nonetheless, here he says, you should not surely die. Milton, interestingly enough, in Paradise Lost, says that Eve's thinking goes like this. Maybe he ate of the tree because he's speaking. But whatever it is, it's a direct denial of what God has said. That's not what's going to happen. And then it gets worse. It's not just God is wrong, but God's intentions are against you. Look at what he says next. He says, you will not surely die, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He says there's something selfish about God. He's trying to keep to himself this reality, this God-like reality. He's trying to keep you in your place, Eve. But if you were to eat of that, he doesn't want you to because he knows that you would know good and evil like he does, that you would be like God is. Now, if you were to analyze the things that Satan says here, that the serpent says here, um, they're not fully untrue. We're going to read in just a few verses, and Adam and Eve ate, and they had the knowledge. When God says, what are we going to do about this? He says, since they now know good and evil. When he says, you shall not surely die, there's a sense where that reads accurate too because Adam's going to lead a long, long life, right? But underneath these facts, so-called, is a total reality that he's leaving off the table. They're half-truths. He continues on here. And verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now notice how quick the description is here. We see that Eve just hears this, looks at the tree, and makes a couple of observations. The fruit looks tasty, that the tree is attractive, and that, oh, this will make me wise, this will bring me knowledge. And so she eats, and she turns to Adam, and he eats That's the whole description that's given. Now, a couple of things. First off, when we get to the New Testament, the weight of these consequences are put firmly on the shoulders of Adam. There were rabbis, and there's probably been preachers who have blamed Eve. But Paul says very specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Eve was deceived, Adam was not. And so it's in Adam's sin, sin that comes death and condemnation. But there's a second thing I want to clarify here, one that I encounter in literature. It's in Paradise Lost, but it's also, if you've ever read uh, Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart. The way that he sees this is that Adam learns that Eve has done this and chooses her over God, which actually philosophically is not that bad of an idea that we would choose God's good gift over the good giver. But it romanticizes Adam. It says that what Adam did is understandable and it was truly loving even if it was wrong-handed. He said, I'm the type of guy who would even risk 
immortality, eternity, my relationship with God for this woman. That is not what the text says. The idea here is not that Adam was off somewhere else and Eve was on her own. Look again very closely at what it says here. It says at the end of verse 6 there, um, she ate and she also gave to her husband who was with her. Okay, So Adam is present watching as his wife dialogues with this serpent, watches as she makes her choice and then participates in it. Okay. Adam's responsibility here, his failure is a failure of inactivity. He doesn't stop it. We read earlier that he was to keep the garden and there's no protection here. Woman was created from his side and he's responsible for it, but here he, he lets her take the lead, lets her make the decision, doesn't do anything to help or to protect her, and then, as we'll see in a second, blames her for the whole thing. But he's right there, he's present. So how can it be then that it says in the New Testament that Eve was deceived, not Adam? Here's why I think it's interesting that Eve says earlier on that she couldn't even touch the tree. Now, I'm, I'm reading into this, and I've heard other preachers say this, but it makes sense that Adam is the only one we see in the passage who God speaks to and gives the command. He says, Adam, do not eat of the tree. Eve hasn't been created yet. So how does Eve know this commandment at all? Adam told her. Is it that surprising that Adam would go, you know what, don't even touch it, right? But the point is here, the point is here, she's deceived because she's never heard directly from the mouth of God this command. Adam has. And so it's not just another interpretation it's contrary to what God has spoken to him personally and he eats nonetheless okay now I want you to notice that it tells us what happened and it gives us the consequences immediately and we don't have time to look at it but it's interesting to study these three consequences in relationship to the way that Eve saw the tree and so she sees she sees it and now she sees that she's naked Right? And she saw that it was desirable to make one wise, and now she knows evil so well that she has to cover herself up. Right? But notice what it says here. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so what happens here? Suddenly they have firsthand experience in evil, and that evil directly brings about shame. Right? Now they can't even be fully disclosed to one another, and so they make for themselves clothes out of fig leaves okay the second thing I want you to notice is that they try and fix this by covering it up that's not surprising at all is it right that's that's human uh human experience 101 teaches us the first thing we do when we do something wrong is we try and cover it up we sweep it under the rug uh you know we throw it out uh the second thing we do is we hide ourselves and that's what we see here and then the third thing we do is we blame someone else this is This is history, as the author presents it, but paradigmatic history, right? Why are we the way we are? Because this is where we come from, okay? Now, notice what it says in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So first, they hide themselves from one another, and now they hide themselves from God. We see separation between Adam and Eve, and now we see separation between God. They're not sure they want to be in his presence to the point of irrationality, right? This is the worst and shortest hide-and-seek game that has ever been played in history. Uh, But they hide 
And I want you to remember here that the Bible portrays God as being the creator who creates things out of what he's spoken, even though he interrogates them here. It's not because he doesn't know the answers. Can we assume that that's the case, right? And so notice, notice what happens, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Do you not hear the silliness in that? Maybe, maybe you don't have small children who don't know how to hide. But I know what it means to say, where are you, where I know exactly where they are, right behind their hands, you know, because that doesn't work. He says this, though, because he's trying to draw them out in confession. And he'll continue this, right? So I want you to notice here that this was not set up like some sort of mousetrap, right, where they grab the tree and as soon as they taste it, they're poisoned and died. Right? And it's not the type of thing where God you know, suddenly throws on the lights and he's been hiding in the bushes all the time and he says, I knew you would do that. Right? It says that he's coming and he comes looking for them. And this is where something's really important to keep in mind when you're reading the Bible. And that's the fact that the written word doesn't carry tone. You know this to be the case because it's why you don't have important conversations while texting. Right? Because conveying sarcasm, conveying joy, conveying sadness or sympathy is much harder in text. And if the recipient is in the wrong frame of mind, they're going to read it wrongly. And so we can take our shame and our guilt and what we project on God, and we hear, Adam, where are you? And we hear the sound of a voice, you know, of a, of a cop who's got the house surrounded through the megaphone. Right? But the better way to read this the one that combines with the character of God as we see throughout is through the broken heart of a father. He says, Adam, where are you? Right? And the rest of the story plays that out. Yes, there will be sentencing, but in the midst of that sentencing is a tremendous promise where God says, I'm going to set this right. So first he says, Adam, where are you? And verse 10, uh, Adam, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Confession. He's trying to get Adam to own up. Okay. Now, notice here uh, how Adam answers. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be me, gave to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree and I ate. Is that a yes? It's a very modified yes. It's a yes but, right? It's blame shifting. And so instead of owning up to his sin here, he feels the need to justify himself and say, well, it's true, I did it, but here's why. And what he does is he blames this woman, this woman who a page earlier, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? And now he wants nothing to do with her. In fact, it's worse than that because notice he adds the woman that you gave me. You see, here's the thing about blaming other people. If there's truly a sovereign God, the blame always stops with him. When we blame others, we are ultimately saying, it's, it's the husband that you gave me. It's the roommate that you gave me, right? It's the system that I was born into. God knows all of those things, right? This is not new information. He doesn't go, oh, maybe I should take Eve back. She was only a prototype anyways. Let me work out the kinks and I'll bring her back, right? He's not after an explanation of what happened. He's after a confession of guilt because that's where the problem has been. But we do the same things. And so what happens here? He, instead of dealing with that, instead of even justifying it by, by responding to it, he turns to Eve uh, and he says, uh, verse 13, 
The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now she does the same thing, but notice she is just telling the truth. She really was deceived. She was tricked. Adam can't say that, as we already talked about. And so she says it, and what we see now is a sentencing, and I want you to notice that it goes in the direct opposite order. And so man says it was the woman, woman says it was the serpent, God lays out the sentence for the serpent, and then for the woman, and then for man, okay? And this is what, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that it's a cursing, right? It's a sentence and it's extreme. He doesn't curse Adam. He doesn't curse Eve. He does the serpent. And second, I want to start with the end when he says, you shall eat dust, okay? Now, this is not a pre-scientific understanding of what, si- what snakes have in their diet, okay? This is standard metaphorical language that we find. Actually, we use it today, right? On the occasional film, you'll hear someone say, eat my dust, Right? The idea has to do with subservience. It has to do with the fact that they will be low and humble. In the same way, although it's totally true that serpents' mobility is moving across the ground, when he says here, um, when he says here that you will go on your belly, remember, it's not, he's not just talking to the instrument of the serpent, but the power behind it. Okay? We'll see that in just a second. The idea here is of defeat. The idea here is of consequence. And notice that it says here in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now we could just read that as a general conflict between human beings and snakes. And snakes will bite people and people will kill snakes. But we're already set up in the first half to expect a final consequence, right? Eventually you will eat dust. That's the idea here. And so here's what's actually going on here. He's saying that I'm going to reverse this, that I'm going to conquer this power of evil, that all that you think you've accomplished will be completely undone and I will put you in your place. Okay? And he says he will do it between a war. What, we see, uh, what we've seen is conflict between the sexes that just started. We've seen conflict between mankind and God. And now we see that there's this evil element that will perpetually be in conflict. The Bible says that evil is only explicable in our lives in total if you leave in this invisible variable that's still important, which it calls Satan and demonic forces. Okay? And so here it says that this war is going on and that eventually there's going to be victory and that the victory will be kind of strange. What does it say? It says that the offspring of the woman, which honestly is a really weird way to put it. If you have an older translation, it says the seed of woman. And generally, even from a Hebrew understanding, we have the womb of the woman and the seed of the man. But nonetheless, from one of Eve's own children, it says that the serpent will bite his heel, but that self-same act will be the crushing of the serpent's head. Realize that that's not just how to deal with a snake, although it's probably a good plan, but it's talking about ruling, right? It's talking about headship. Have you ever seen in Catholic churches the picture of Michael the archangel with his foot on the neck of the devil? This comes from this verse right here. In fact, in Romans, we know that this is a proper way to understand this because speaking to the church in Rome, he says, surely God will place the head of Satan under your feet shortly. He sees this and recognizes that it's a promise that God, through mankind itself, is going to put things right. 
but it will be abiding. It will be venomous. It will be a defeat. It will be a sting. The early church fathers called this the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. They saw that here, although it's veiled, and although it's mystical, and although the details haven't been filled in, is God's full plan of redemption first mentioned. And it's easy to go, but aren't we just reading that back into a really old story? And I would say absolutely not. Because as we keep reading in Genesis, this idea is going to continue. You want to know why genealogy is so important in the Old Testament? It's because of the offspring. It's because of the seed, right? And it's tracing this line intentionally. And that's why when we get to the story of Joseph, which blows my mind, we see Joseph who saves his whole family And then Jacob takes all of his kids and he lays his hand on Judah's shoulders and he says, you're going to be the one whose descendant saves the family, right? In fact, we'll see with Eve just a second. She seems to get what's going on here. But I want you to recognize here that the idea that's presented in the first chapters of the the Bible of what went wrong is our fault and how it's fixed is not something we can do, right? This does not sound like man's search for God. Man is hiding It's God's search for man. And he doesn't say, let me give you some rules and if you keep them, everything will be okay. He says, let me give you a promise and I'll fulfill it and I'll fix everything. Okay, here, here is the difference between religion and what the Bible presents. Every religion is ultimately fig leaves. It's us going, how can we fix this? And inherently, it really only covers the problem and maybe it can cover it from the people around you, but it doesn't even cover it from yourself. So you still have the guilt and you still have the shame because you cannot fix what's happened. Now we could ask the question, but, but isn't this just what happened to Adam? What does that have to do with me? But the Bible goes on in the book of Romans as it goes on in chapter four, as we'll see maybe tonight if we get lucky. Uh, it, this has tremendous impact. Okay, this is not just a bad example or a bad beginning What happens in Adam, in a sense, happens to all of us. It's what the theologians called original sin. And what they mean is, since Adam, all of us have had a sin nature, an inclination towards sin, a curvitas in, as they say in Latin. We've been curved in on ourselves, and so now we see the world through ourselves, through our selfishness. Why does Cain kill Abel? Because Adam ate the fruit. Okay? And the Bible, like I said, in Genesis is going to walk right through this thing and it's going to demonstrate that this problem doesn't end with Adam. I'll give you one illustration and then we'll move on. In Hebrew thinking, all of your potential descendants already exist in you and your choices. If you go to a Holocaust museum, they'll talk about how how many generations of people were killed in the Holocaust. Not just individuals, but those whole lines were severed and ended, right? And so it's kind of like this, that as it says in Romans chapter 5, all of us were in Adam like each individual page in this book. And so what happens to the book happens to the pages. If I leave the book on a train, the pages get lifted on the train. If I spill a bottle of ink on the book, it soaks through into every page. Okay? In the same way, the Bible is not just presenting this as a paradigm of what usually goes wrong with mankind. It's showing us what went wrong in totality that we cannot fix. Adam had unique circumstances that you've never had, a perfect environment with no internal intention or desire to sin, just an external temptation that he gave into. 
but we have a fallen world and we have a fallen nature. And so that changes the game. But nonetheless here, God promises in the offspring of Eve that he's going to fix it, that he's going to set things right. If you take that idea and begin to read the letters of the New Testament, they'll make so much more sense. Okay. Now, continuing on, he says this, and then he turns to the woman and we see consequences. But notice it's not a curse. Okay. And I also want you to notice where the consequences fall. They fall in the role of woman. They're not generic applied to her. They're not equal to Adam and Eve. They're unique to her as woman, as mother, as wife, and Adam as husband, as man, as father. And so what does it say here for the woman first? I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So the first thing he says is that now there's going to be difficulty in raising kids. And to be specific here, although this is clearly referencing the pain of giving birth, it means a lot more than that. Childbearing here doesn't mean labor. They know that word. It means raising kids, okay? The fact is, now you have to raise a sinner just like you, okay? And there's going to be pain, and there's going to be difficulty. When Simeon speaks to Mary and says, a sword will pierce your heart also, that means that you have to recognize now that you bring kids into this world, right? And all of the danger, and all of the difficulty, and all of the fears, and all of the environment that that involves, so there's one relationship. And then second, it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you, okay? Now, the word there for desire is used of Song of Solomon in just the most basic sense. My desire is for my husband and his desire is for me. But there's a good reason to believe that this word has more than that involved here. And the reason is because when we get into chapter four, God, using these same two words, desire and rule, speaks to Cain and he says, surely sin is lying at the door, but you sh- and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. And so what's happened here is Cain is feeling bad because his offering's rejected. He's plotting the murder of his brother, and God interferes and says, Cain, Cain, you can fix this. You don't have to go through with this. The temptation, it's right there. It's about to devour you. Its desire is to eat you alive, but you can rule over it. And so most likely here, then, the idea of desire is not merely a sexual desire for her husband, which wouldn't be a different consequence than what we had. And it's not merely just um, that, that, uh, that wives of wife beaters will find ways to justify their relationship. It's actually that she will desire to usurp, desire to rule over her husband, and so it's broken from that side, but it's also broken from the other, and he will dominate you, okay? Basically here, her relationships with her kids gets harder, and her relationship with her husband gets harder. Why? Because they're both sinners. And so now, even when authority is good, Genesis chapter 3, anybody? There's rebellion. And on top of that, it's not going to be good authority. Right? And so we see here a breakdown in the relationships even further. And then he turns to the man and he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So now we see it's not just mankind that's affected, but all of creation. Remember, it was created for them. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, or literally in toil. Right? And so now it's not work, it's hard work. Now it's not work, it's blood, sweat, and tears work, right? From a productive garden to the dust bowl of our world that has to be worked and isn't reliable in these things, 
now, instead of having an abundance of fruit available, you're going to have to work so that you don't starve, right? Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plant of your field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. And so we see here that the labor of man is, is now laborious, right? That it's gone from work to toil, and that eventually this struggle with nature that's now been laid out, nature will win. He will work the ground, but eventually the ground will work him over, right? As you were created out of the dust, so you will now return to it. And clearly that's pointing to death. Just as God promised, now death is part of the component. But I want you to see how holistic this description is of the world that we live in. It's conflict between people. It's conflict between us and nature. It's conflict between us and the devil. It's conflict between us and God. It's all laid out here as being the consequence of this one thing. Now, there are some who would read this passage as being that um, patriarchy is the consequence of the fall. And so it's totally and completely removed and reversed in Jesus because he set things right. We've already seen that even before the fall, there's a relationship of difference. Equality, but difference. Helper and the one who's being helped. Um, as well as we see Adam naming. And even here that continues. He named his wife once woman, and now he's about to name her Eve. But the pattern here is sustained. It's just a broken pattern. Um, so we've seen gender We've seen sexuality, we've seen marriage, we've seen all of these things, and I just want you to understand tonight, because we can't dig into it deeply, that every time, every time the New Testament deals with those three issues, gender, sexuality, and marriage, it goes here. Every time, okay? So when Jesus speaks of marriage in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, he points here. When Paul speaks of marriage in Ephesians 5, he points here. When he speaks of gender in 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 11 or even Galatians 3.28, right, when it says there is neither male nor female, he doesn't say man nor woman. He chooses Genesis 1.28, male and female. He's intentional there. But every time he points here, okay, even when Paul talks about sex in 1 Corinthians 6, he says the two become one flesh, right? This is foundational for the way that we understand these things. And it's not just, not just the world we live in, but the world as it was created to be that informs those understandings, okay? So let's, uh, let's finish off the chapter. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. Now Eve means life. And I think personally I see a pretty sweet beginning of restoration here because he very easily could have called her death. That would be an oversimplification. It would just be another layer of blame, but it is what we'd expect based on his behavior. But here he recognizes that she's going to be the source of salvation, the, the seed of the woman. And he takes that on faith and he says, you are life. You are the mother of all living, it explains here in his name. And so he renames her in faith. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed for them. So the second thing we see here is not only does God promise to set everything right, he also says your covering's not going to work. Now, to be honest, I think this is probably more than just fashion. Okay, this is more than just an upgrade from, um, from leaves to leather. Okay. 
because frankly, where do they live? Are they threatened by the weather conditions of winter and the harshness of these things? Even if those things are the consequence of the fall, there's something more going on here. Okay, the second thing I want you to notice here is that if he creates skins, that means something dies. The first death in the Bible is an animal. And it's an animal that's killed to provide for Adam and Eve. You cannot tell me that Moses, who's going to go on to tell us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, lay out an entire sacrificial system, that he doesn't recognize what he's saying here, okay? The point is that God's plan is going to uh, require sacrifice, and there will be a death, and that death will be on their behalf, and through that, the shame will be dealt with, the nakedness will be dealt with, they'll be rightly and properly clothed, okay? Um, Now, Uh, verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore. And so he says, Now it's true. They do know good and evil. And maybe it's speaking here of experiential evil. They've tasted evil. They know it firsthand. It's become part of them. Right? Um, there is that author who wrote about concentration camps whose name I cannot pronounce. I'm going to say that it's Soltznian. But what he says is that the line between good and evil uh, travels directly through all of us, right? That it's not evil's over there and I'm with good. It's not I'm evil and good is there, but now there's this thing in the midst. And that may be what's being referred to. But the second thing he says is, lest he take of the tree of life. Now, we're not told that that tree has healing capacities or that it would have granted eternal life. And it seems, it seems like it's just another sentence. Like, I said they're going to die, so we need to get them away from the tree. But here's, this, here's what I want you to understand, okay? Adam did surely die as soon as he tasted. That's hard for us as moderns to understand for two reasons. One, because we limit death just to physical death. And two, because, because of that, we think of death as being an end. And so death is just an end. In the Hebrew mind, death is always separation, okay? And so we experience death of other people in terms of separation. We no longer see them. We also experience death from a biblical mindset uh, mindset in separation from our body, right? But ultimately, the death that Adam dies on day one is a separation from God who is life, okay? And so here, the issue is not eternal life if he just eat the tree it's eternal death it's separation from god it's it's vampire it's zombie it's that type of an idea it's a living death and so god removes that from the scenario although when you get to the end of the bible surprise surprise the tree of life is back right heaven is full of it and mankind lives in the midst of it again but what does he do? It says, verse 30, 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out, and the word is stronger there. It's literally drove him out, okay? Drove him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so he drives them out of the garden, and then he sets a guard. And it says that it's a cherubim. Now, later the cherubims are described as being effectively indescribable. Okay, but nonetheless, this is an angelic office, and it says he has a flaming sword. And what it literally says about the sword that turned every way is that it encircled. So we don't really know what's pictured here, but you don't want to mess with it. 
okay? But I do want to point out something that I think is intriguing. It's possible here the idea is to keep man out, okay? And there's a wonderful short story by uh, Madeline Angle where she pictures what that first year was like as Eve gets pregnant, not knowing what pregnancy is and wondering what this is going to be like and longing for the garden. And Adam goes back to try and get her coconut milk from the garden and he encounters this flaming sword, you know, and almost loses his life. It's an interesting read. But Milton also had an interesting idea that I think is possible. It's that here God sets a guard not for Adam and Eve, but for Satan to keep him out, to stop him from interfering any further in his plans. Um, It doesn't really tell us here And this guard is no longer needed because there was a flood, right? So you can search all you want. You're not going to find the garden. Don't worry about being struck down by a flaming sword. That's not really the point. But the point clearly is one of finality, is it not? There's no going back. And this is another feature of sin that we might as well in on tonight. Sin can be forgiven. Restoration can be had. But there's no going back. And when we get to heaven... There will be Jesus, and he will have scars. And those scars are because of sin. And he deals with it. And as it says beautifully in the book of Joel, God can even restore the years the locusts have eaten, meaning he can even take judgment and reverse the clock on it and make it all right. But even in relationship, sin can be forgiven, but there's no removing it. There's no going back to the garden. You know, the, the loss of innocence is a real thing. And that's true in our lives as well. And so, um, so what we find here in these two chapters is the world as it was intended to be and the world as it is. And right smack dab in the middle, we find the reason why. Now, why do I resonate with this as opposed to other origin stories? What is it that draws me to Christianity? Simply put, realism is a big part of that. So many other religions say if we just try a little harder, if we just have a little more self-control, if we just do a few more good deeds, then the problem will be dealt with. And I look at the world as it is, and I look at my own heart, and I go, that doesn't seem right to me. The condition we're in, the problem seems to go deeper. I resonate with Paul when he says, the things that I want to do, that's not what I... or." that's not what I do. And the things I don't want to do, that's exactly what I do. Woe is me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? When I look at the world as it is and we find the questions that we have, how can a loving God create a world like this? The Bible gives those answers and it says this is not the world that God intended. And that there really is a thing as evil and consequence and all these things and he totally has a plan. In the book of Romans, he picks up these ideas in chapter 8, and he says the whole of creation groans in travail, waiting for the revelation of the children of God, waiting for things to be set right. That the world we know it, because of these things, has gone sideways, but it's not what God had intended. That the sin and the shame and all of these things are not as God designed it, but he will overcome it. And he will have victory. And eventually the serpent will be put in his place. And eventually man and woman will be restored. In fact, it seems that what we will have, that the New Testament talks about, is better than Adam and Eve ever had. That they're not merely the good and innocent creation of God, but they've become the very righteousness of God. That they're not untested, but tested and proven. That they're not merely the creation of God, but now adopted into his family as his children. 
that they're not merely walking in the garden with God, but that they've become the temple of the living God, that the Spirit has come to dwell in them. And so Augustine called this Felix culpa, the lucky fall, right? It seems like a bad thing, but even in this badness, God doesn't just fix it. It's not just the scales have been tipped and he writes it. He actually judos it, like I said, and uses it to bring mankind into a greater and fuller destiny. If you want to know what the Bible is about, that's the story it tells. It starts here, and we'll watch it as it moves through Genesis. We'll watch it as it moves through Exodus, all the way through the Old Testament. We'll watch as Jesus points and says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. And then we'll watch as the trajectory of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is explained on where everything is going, and it, it begins here. So let's, uh, let's finish there for the night, and we'll pick up in chapter 4 next week. Father, we didn't hit our goal tonight, but we doubled. We doubled our progress, and I thank you for that. And these things are so foundational, Lord, that reference so many times in the Bible. These things come up in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. They're referred to in the prophets and in the law. They explain the whys and the hows of so many things that God does and says. So it's worthwhile to camp here. But I pray that you would help us to, to imagine a world like this, a world as you intended it to be, that we would be realistic in our assessment of our environment, of ourselves, of our relationship with you and with others, that we would really feel the reality of a world after Adam. And I pray that as we see how black things are, how dark things are, that then we would reassess the light of what you've done in Jesus Christ and that the good news would become good news in a greater way because we're fully acquainted with the bad news. And I pray, Lord, that the first taste of restoration in ourselves, in our relationships with one another, in our marriages, in, um, in our sex life, uh, in our relationship with the world, in our purpose and intention in life, uh, in giving glory to you, I pray that there would be the first taste of restoration that we would walk not merely in the image of Adam, but in the image of Christ, being reshaped and reformed into the last Adam, bearing the marks not just of Adam's sin and Adam's death, but Jesus' resurrection. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.